This episode is brought to you by Edelkrone, reinventing filmmaking solutions for filmmakers. Learn more at http colon backslash backslash edel.kr backslash nfs. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast the week of January 20th, 2020. I'm here with George Edelman. Hey. And uh, writer Michelle De La Tour. Hi everyone. And we're going to be talking about the festival that starts this week, the Sundance Film Festival. We're going to be talking about two pieces of tech news, an 8K drone from someone that's not DJI. And we're going to be talking about a really fascinating lens from Lawa. We're going to wrap all of it up with a little bit of discussion of the Oscars and Grown Ups 3. That's this week on (laughs) the No Film School podcast. Uh, See you guys after the break. So our first story this week is we're going to talk about Sundance a little bit. We're talking about Sundance for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, We're talking about Sundance because a lot of us are going to be there. But uh, we're specifically talking about Sundance because I feel like the case can never be made enough why you should start going before you have a project there. Like a lot of filmmakers, I definitely fell into the like, I'm going to start going to these things when I feel like I have a project there. That'll motivate me to go. And I don't know if it was like, fear or awkwardness or whatever but I didn't go to Sundance for years and years and years and I have to say I regret it I feel like I should have started going much sooner and the reasons why I didn't go at least one of them was I thought it was going to be much more expensive than it actually is and one thing you guys everybody should understand about Sundance is it is this it is the great beating heart of like American independent film it is the place where everybody is like meeting each other and getting to know each other but it's also in a town that is ready for it. Like Park City is a ski town and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of hotel rooms. It's not like South by where Austin isn't really prepared and everybody's like sleeping in tents out the side of the city. Like Park City can handle it. And if you really want to save money, you can just say in Salt Lake City and drive up every day, which people do. I did in 2016. We, my buddy Jonathan and I just stayed in Salt Lake City. And it was great. You could drive up the mountain to do Sundance stuff. Or even one day we stayed in Salt Lake. We went to see the the Morbin Church has a tour and an organ and everything. So really we wanted to lead the podcast today talking about why we think it's relevant for people to start going to Sundance before they necessarily think they have a reason to do so. I always thought of it like, I'll go to Sundance when I've got a film premiering there. Like, you know, being the confident and foolish young person that I was. And I think that what I really missed out on in that attitude was that you can learn what kind of films premiere there (laughs) when you go. Otherwise you really don't have much of an idea and you can also meet people and you can also learn about filmmaking and you can also learn about possible collaborators and how the industry works. And it's a huge opportunity if you can make it happen. It's, it is hard to make it happen. And I will just I don't want to say hard disagree, but like soft disagree that it, Park City's built for it because it is built for travel, but it's a small place. Main Street is small. And part of what's, it, it's kind of like it's built for it and it's not because I really feel like all of New York and LA like cram into this one little ski resort town. And the only thing I'd say about South by and Austin in comparison is that it's a big enough city that it feels like you don't, you're not bumping into people nonstop. But that's also kind of cool about Sundance because you're so close. And so in the, it's like a nonstop 
networking event. I don't know how else to put it. Like you're all just on top of each other in the buses, on the shuttles, like in the lines and presses there. And yeah, I, but I cannot stress enough how great I think it is for people to try and get there if they can before they, without a movie. And I'd also say one of our goals in our coverage, and we're going to be bringing a lot of Sundance coverage to nofilmschool.com and to this podcast in the coming weeks is to try and get it, make it possible for people who aren't there to get some sense or get some of the value of what you can learn about what's happening there and what the, the experience is like without the expensive or impossible trip. And now what, what do you, I'll leave it to Michelle. The one thing I, what I just wanted to say about what I meant by built for it is just hotel rooms and shuttles. Cause we've all yeah, been, no, yeah. we've all yeah. been to that event where it's like, Wait a minute, there's a balloon festival in town, so the only hotel room is $470? <laughs> I'm just yeah, going to totally. sleep in my car. Whereas, like, literally, <laughs> I think we booked our flight. I, I think we, like, the, you know, when I went to Sundance with my buddy Jonathan, I think we got our hotel rooms in Salt Lake City for, like, 80 a night, like, two weeks in advance. Like, it was not nearly as, I had this delusion before I went that it was going to be this town that was not ready for it. And, like... I love how small it is because you are really bumping into people all the time. Yeah. There are enough hotel rooms and there is a shuttle and there is like the infrastructure is there where it's not. It doesn't feel like a cholera breakout is going to happen. It doesn't feel like everybody's like sleeping, <laughs> you know, it 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 feels. Yeah, but I, I agree. The smallness is the perk. Yeah. And I just yeah, that is a great pro tip there. Stay in Salt Lake. And find make your way up, save a lot of money, and still make it possible. Um, I will share a tip that I feel like I learned from South by Southwest, which is two. They're like two secrets. They're not secrets per se, but they're things you should keep in mind as you head in. So one is um, a lot of these films are are already picked up, and so you know they're going to be online or in theaters soon. In fact, they already have the dates for many of them. And so if you're mm -hmm. trying to create your schedule. Um, and your schedule is like, oh man, I could wait in line for three hours to see, I don't actually know how long the lines might be, three hours to go see Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift documentary, but it's going to be on Netflix in like two weeks. Um, there's probably other ways to use your time in community, you know, collaborating or setting up meetings or going to a film that you may not see uh, outside of Sundance. Um, and that's what I did at South by Southwest because the, you know, the secret was like, oh, this is already being picked up and played yep. somewhere soon. Do I need to see it in a theater it's different if you know if you're there with a director and you want to see that collaboration and that talk. But if not, there's probably different ways to use your time, and I think that that might be really interesting. You know, I think there are big draws, sure, but actually, I think the small draws are what's really interesting about the festivals. Things you might not ever see: short film uh, blocks, animated yeah. film blocks, things you know, things that um, they aren't picked up yet, or you might never come across that kind of a block of films ever again. Those kinds of things, small uh, meetups, um, pitch, panels. pitch meetings, panels. There are, some, there are some opportunities to learn as well. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a, an also a great tip because I spent a lot of time, my first rounds covering some of these festivals with no film school or attending them, waiting and seeing some of the marquee stuff that everybody's going to see in short order, like you said. And there's stuff that you will not get a chance to see. So if you go, um, definitely seek out the things that you know you may learn from or you may identify qualities of that can help you or meet people at that aren't like already Netflix will be showing it in a week. Because there's actually quite a bit of stuff that like is premiering at these festivals that's not you know competing for dollars or for uh, awards. Yep. 
And I don't know how much of this is true for this year at Sundance, but one of the other kind of quote, someone called it a dirty secret of South by Southwest, but I don't know if I'd call it that, is that some of these panels are pre are taped, right? So you can watch them later. And so if you're interested in a panel and it's going to be huge and someone is taping it, then you can do that. Like it's going to be on YouTube tomorrow or something like that, right? So if you're, again, if you're like lining up your schedule and you're like, man, I don't want to, I, I don't know if I can wait three hours to see so-and-so talk about so-and-so and it's going to be filmed, great. Like if, if you're not, if you, if you can use it for collaboration and meeting other people, great. If not, and it's going to be in a lecture hall and, and it's going to be taped, like that might be some time you get back, right? Because you can stack your viewing experiences later. Yeah. I realized when I first went that you can really tell what kind of movies these festivals are looking for in submissions when you watch a bunch of the movies at the festivals. That sounds extremely Mm. obvious, but I didn't really know that before I started going to them. And if you have a festival on your target list for maybe a project, it would be really good to go to it and see if the project actually makes sense there. Because sometimes you'll go and you'll You'll think, like I thought at least, wow, I can't believe I submitted X project to this festival. It never would have made it. It is not the right movie for this festival. Like even if it's a great movie, right? They have, they have things they're looking for and you can't put your finger on it until you've been and seen not just the big stuff, but everything in between. There is one specific thing I'm, I'm curious about. And, I, and Ryan Koo and I uh, of also of No Film School uh, have been talking about it for a while now is there's this indie episodic program at Sundance and I spoke to the one of the programmers there about it and what they're looking for and it's interesting because it's not shorts and it's not features it's it's like tv or web series or docu-series or limited series or they're looking to try and reflect the fact that there's so much good episodic content happening in the world so they wanted to create a space at Sundance where you can showcase things like that and they can possibly go into development or just get you, you know, another building block in someone's career. But it's really cool because there's all manner of size. There are things that are like three minute pieces. And then there's like, you know, big docuseries that are already finished and, you know, that go on to Showtime or HBO or whatever. And I think that's an interesting program to kind of be aware of from the outside also for creators to think about because it's an it's you think about Sundance like you're making an a feature film that's for Sundance or you're making a short film that's for Sundance you don't think about the possibility that maybe you have a really cool weird idea for a TV show and instead of just pitching it the traditional route you could actually take it to Sundance now through this program so that's something i'm going to keep an eye on so we're going to do two tech stories this month, which is, this week, which is crazy because January is usually slow with tech. But we had two interesting things pop up this week that we wanted to talk about and make sure people were aware of. The first thing we're going to talk about is a new drone from Autel, a, a United States robotics company. They're in Washington, and it is an 8K foldable drone. As you, as anybody who's been paying attention to drones lately, foldability is really the obsession. They're still like the DJI Phantom around a lot, but you need a giant case to carry it. Foldability has really been key for the last couple generations of drones. And so this is sort of a a foldable drone that folds up into a little package, but it's got an 8K sensor. Now, 
DJI does not have anything with an 8K sensor. So clearly DJI is the market leader in drones and they're clearly sort of taking a shot across the bow at DJI with an 8K sensor. But I do want to point out that the 8K sensor is not actually as interesting as, you know, the drones available in a couple models, an 8K version, a dual version, which is more industrial. and It's got like an infrared sensor and a uh, sort of a pro version, which has a one inch sensor. And the one-inch sensor only shoots 6K resolution, but I actually think filmmakers are probably going to be a lot more interested in the pro version with the one-inch sensor because, you know, as we talk about all the time, when we talk about full frame versus Super 35, when you get to a larger sensor, you get a more natural field of view, you get a larger photo sites, so they're better in low-light resolution. And honestly, the difference between 6K and 8K resolution is not... On such a small sensor, they're not going to look dramatically different. And I think that the one-inch sensor is probably going to be a whole lot more interesting for filmmakers. The reason why this is a relevant story that I think is really interesting is this is a space that DJI just owns. It's one of the last remaining, like, you can say Canon owns YouTube, like, the look of Canon is the look of YouTube. But, like, you know, high-end cinema is not even owned by Aerie. You look at high... Aerie owns most of high-end cinema, but Sony has Venice, and there's Red, and there's uh, Panasonic Vericam. DJI really owns motion picture drone work. Industrial drones have some competition and consumer drones, but like in terms of like the drones every filmmaker owns, it's all DJI. It's like the most, I can't think of anywhere else in in the marketplace where there's someone who's so dominant. Hmm. And uh, it's interesting because GoPro really tried to make a move on this a couple of years ago with the Karma, and those all fell out of the sky. And the karma. <laughs> yeah. I mean, only like a few of them fell out of the sky, but enough of them fell out of us. You know, when you make drones, there's really no room to have any of them fall out of the sky. <laughs> no. And uh, so I'm. It's great, though, when they do. <laughs> oh, my God. Those videos. It looks fantastic. <laughs> those videos on YouTube of them falling to the ground are so insane. Oh, the one that falls into water where someone swam out to catch it is the best one. Oh, I, I think far. I've seen that, too. Yeah. Hands oh, down. Classic. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. The only one I've seen is where they uh, where it falls like like the person flying it is underneath it and it falls basically right next to them. And you're like, oh, wow, because <laughs> they're like flying in a park or whatever. And it almost hits the them. battery just dies. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's terrifying getting hit by a drone. So it's an interesting reminder. Drones are actually really hard to make. <laughs> um, they're actually really complicated and difficult. And so I'm personally, I haven't flown the hotel yet. I don't fly drones very much because I live in New York where it's kind of restricted. But I'm cur- I'm excited to see more competition in the space because I think competition is good. And I'm excited that someone else... That, like, frankly, is not on my radar. I don't know if Autel was on the radar for you guys, but really not on my radar. And uh, I'm excited to see what they can bring. The initial imagery looks nice. Are you a drone? Uh, do you do you fly a lot of drones, Michelle? Do you have a lot of experience, or do you have thought like thoughts on on this development? I personally don't fly a lot of drones. I know a lot of friend. I have a lot of friends that are drone operators or drone drone flyers. Um, and their question would prob questions plural are probably the same as mine, which is when is this going to be out and how much will it cost? And neither are available yet because this was a CES debut. Um, and I think <laughs> I'm curious about that piece of the puzzle because if it's comparable to the um, to its competitors, great. If it's totally, you know, if it's thirty thousand dollars. 
this is a different conversation. Um, so similar to like, we talked about the GoPro and the other camera last week. You know, the, one of the reasons it made it a competitor was because it was competitively priced. So I'm curious about the, I'm curious about the when, but I'm more curious about the price. I would be shocked if they went that high above DJI. Looking at the spec list, it seems like they're going to, because they don't have the brand recognition. I mean, you know, what's funny is in some worlds, DJI, you know, in stabilizers, like when you're comparing the Movi Pro versus the Ronin 2, the Ronin 2 is less expensive than the Movi Pro. Like in some places, DJI comes in as being more affordable than competitors. My guess is Autel is going to try and sneak under DJI Mavic pricing, is my guess. Um, yeah, the... There, I, Parrot, theoretically, is also in this space. So there are other people trying to compete, but but nobody else is really bringing a strong competition to uh, DJI. So I think they're going to have to compete on price. The other piece to this that's exciting is the 8K, 6K part, because I think when you're flying a drone, um, the framing is pretty great. But if it's just because you're flying a thing... And you have control of a camera, you know, remotely from far away. Like, you can crop in a little, right, when you're at that resolution if you wanted to. And so when you're, you know, when you're flying and filming, you have a little bit of leeway. Um, That, to me, I I assume would be really helpful for drone operators to consider. Um, Not that they would fly it differently, but that they have a little bit more leeway afterwards if they're, you know, mixing and matching footage and things with the 8K and 6K sensor, um, 6K video. Um, that they can, that they have some flexibility, if you will, <laughs> um, with what they're doing. Our other big tech story this week is from a company called Lawa. You've also heard them called Venus Optics. And uh, they made a huge splash in 2018 with their uh, probe macro lens. It is all over YouTube. You can go to YouTube and watch these amazing macro shots where they're basically... Uh, focusing on the front of the lens, had a nice LED built in. I got to test it for a couple of weeks. I had a really good experience with it. Really, really fun, different lens. And now they're back at again with something else that's really interesting. Um, and it is a 12 millimeter prime that opens to a 2.9, but covers full frame. And frankly, soup like you know, I was just shooting with the Aerie LF last week, and like Aerie's widest signature prime is 18 mil. And I have to say, an 18 millimeter in full frame is a very wide lens. You know, we, f- we frequently, <laughs> like, you know, 18 is really wide. <laughs> and once you add full frame to that, because uh, it widens the field of view, you're in a really wide space. So, uh, Lawa coming out with a 12 mil. And uh, interestingly, a couple months ago, Irix came out with an 11 mil full frame covering prime lens. Um, although we haven't seen as many lenses in the past from Lawa. Uh, from Irix because they're just moving into um, cinema where Lawa has been making uh, some stuff for cinema for a few years now uh, is a really exciting development. It's exciting to see stuff that's this super wide. One of the first questions someone had for me when they heard that uh, I was, I was talking to a DP buddy and they were like, so, so what do you do with the lens that wide? Like there's nowhere (laughs) you can put lights. There's nowhere you can put really anything, but then, you know, it, if you watch a movie like Soy Cuba, Soy Cuba, amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, every filmmaker should go watch it. An insane movie. It took like two years to shoot. They were getting like one shot a month. Um, but they shot most of Soy Cuba on a 5.9 millimeter lens. Now, that's in Super 35. So it's, that's probably equivalent to like a 9 or 10 millimeter in full frame. But, you know, super wide lenses give you different options for what you're able to do. 
Um, you have to think differently when you're working that wide. You don't have as many places to hide a light necessarily. Like, you know, almost everything you want to do is going to show up in frame. Uh, but if you think through your shots well enough, there's these amazing, wonderful things you can do with super wide lenses that sort of bring the whole world into perspective. And the real thing they're really marketing and pushing with this particular 12 millimeter is what they call zero D or zero distortion. Now it's not actually zero distortion, but it's so minimal in distortion that you shouldn't really be able to see it. And they had some really nice like architectural test images that are just very undistorted for a 12 millimeter lens that covers full frame. Um, so I'm really excited to see these out in the field. The zero distortion piece to me is the real kicker. Kicker? The real draw. At Having used a couple of wide angle lenses. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, it's, and it's the price. I mean, it's just in, having used um, a couple of super wides and getting the edges, you know, to have that kind of distortion. You know, squares suddenly look different. Um, lines suddenly look different. Um, it's kind of, it's a it's a character of the lens except when you don't want it to be in which case your straight lines and your shapes look a little funky and so it like it kind of distracts if you if that's not the look you're going for it kind of tells you there's a lens on it right that just you can you can see it you're like oh i get it this looks it's character but it's not maybe the character i'm looking for right now so the zero the zero d to me would be um, I'm really excited to try and play with this lens and it looks like it's available in a couple different mounts so it's not um, you know we're not it's not releasing in just a PL or an EF it's like PL EF and E right so you have a wide you know versatility with it um, which is great and they may have, you know that sounds like something that we usually see with Sigma or other ones that are you know third party and so they're mount agnostic which is lovely um, as opposed to like the new you know like a new Nikon or Canon lens, which is going to give you only one kind of mount. Um, I like that there's a couple options here. So I'm really excited to see what people do. Do you think it's a specialized, like, only for certain projects and certain levels of creators? Or do you think it's something that might work its way into more every, like, common cinematographer AC sets or, like, rental? Like, is it going to be – where do you see it falling in terms of its, its use case, like, frequency? I think there's probably a use case. So I think using super wide is already a very specific use case or like as a following on that side. I think once I started using 14 more than 50, I was like, oh, I transitioned over. Um, use case, I mean, if you're filming cityscapes at night, anything where you can open wide um, will be helpful. Um, it's like cityscapes and documentary filming, particularly if you're if you're not relying on you know if you're filming in a place where you're not going to be able to set up lights anyway, um, and you want to have that level of detail, um, and you want to be able to capture the whole scene with a lens that's going to let you do that, particularly in a full frame, I could see that happening. I think documentary work potentially, particularly in places where you're in the middle of a city, you're capturing a whole bunch of detail um, where you're not going to need lights or you're not going to be able to use them more likely, uh, depending on where you're traveling into. Um, for sure. I think that that would be helpful in documentary cases. Um, hmm. The 2.9, yeah, yeah the 2.9 opening is, is helpful for anything that you're doing at night. I think some of the example videos were city shots at night, um, which is where I could see that use be useful too. So I'm going to give a very New York answer, which is uh, small apartment indie films. 
I feel yes. like uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've been yes. in a location that was not quite big enough and my widest lens was not quite wide enough. And we were like, <laughs> do we put the camera in yep. the closet? Do we like knock a hole in the wall? And like, you know, so I I can see a, a, a huge popularity for this lens in that. In what in that no i hear what i i'm yeah. joking yeah. in that in that indie space where you're shooting a movie i remember this was a not actually a movie i shot it was a movie i gaffed but it, it was uh it was a set in a dorm and the director's like we're shooting in a real dorm and everyone was like really dorms are small and the director's <laughs> like we're shooting in a real dorm that's the move authenticity and so i gaffed this movie that shot in a dorm and it was great and everyone was wonderful but like it's really hard working in a dorm room like it's difficult and you know having a super wide having a, a wider lens would have been nice now as gaffer there would have been even fewer places for me to hide lights and that would have been frustrating but yeah just small space work i think that there is a real perk in a wide lens and people have avoided the super wides before because of the distortion issue once you go to a really distorted lens it makes that tiny space look weird but if you have an yeah. undistorted yeah. wide lens, I think you're going to start to see some sort of real interesting opportunities in that space. The countdown is officially on. We're only a few days away from Edelchrome's biggest reveal in years. A brand new filmmaking tool that no one knows yet. Edelchrome is starting off the year with a great challenge and giving away the product involved to one of you. To win it, all you have to do is head over to Edelchrome's Instagram account, check out their post about the challenge, and share that image on Instagram with the hashtag Edelchrome before January 20th. Stay tuned for the product launch on January 20th. All right, and then our last story of the week, we're going to talk about the Oscars. And uh, the, we had a great headline for our Oscars article. What was it again, George? Uh, the 2020 Academy Award noms leave off ladies and gems. Burn! Got it. Got it. Thank you, Jason Hellerman. Nice work there. Uh, the idea there is just, uh, yeah, representation of female directors was non-existent. And uh, uncut gems, the Safdie brothers, Adam Sandler, um, tour de force, if you ask me, uh, didn't make it anywhere in any, any category. Um, I think both those things are notable. I like that he worked that in. I feel like the conversation about the Oscars this year in film Twitter uh, and in the community was mostly about the idea of snubs and what didn't get nominated, you know, and, and a representation, which is like an ongoing thing these days with the Oscars. Um, I, you know, before I hand off to you guys to think to talk about it i have this thing with the oscars where i think charles we've talked about it before but i think if you're expecting the oscars to as a and the academy as a body to nominate things that are great in your mind you will be disappointed i think that if you are expecting it to be um even progressive even though that's sort of the assumption that hollywood as a body is progressive i think you will also be disappointed um, the Oscars is a TV event, and it's not the Academy votes. People vote within their categories, and a lot of the people voting won't have seen everything or have uh, exist within the bubble of the industry already. So there is there are a lot of factors, I think, that if, if you look down the list of best picture winners, 
you'll be surprised how many movies on that list are underwhelming or just how many amazing movies you've seen in your life that aren't on that list and that weren't even nominated. And the more I saw a great tweet, I'll just wrap up on this where someone said like, at what point in your life did you realize that the Academy as a voting block was not selecting the best stuff? <laughs> I mean, so I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the gist. And there were a lot of fun replies where it was like, Oh, it was this year when I loved this movie and it didn't show up at all. Or like it was this year when like, and I think that's funny because for a lot of us, there's sort of a point where we recognize a lot of us film fans, not just filmmakers, but film watchers. There's a point where we recognize that this thing is not necessarily identifying the the most important or moving pieces for us as individuals. That feels like a fairly common experience. And I think for creatives, it's always important and aspiring creatives, it's important to remember that almost everybody at this level is already a winner, really. And that um, getting, you know, as exciting as it is for people to have their movies nominated or to win Oscars, it's a huge prestige thing. It's, it's not like the Safdies... Um, for example, the Safdie brothers, Ben and Benny and Josh, who made Uncut Gems, that movie is amazing and it's and it's uh, a critical darling and it's going to take them to the next cool place. And that's great for them. And it's great for audiences. And that sort of like the Oscars isn't the be all end all for a career. Certainly, I have a proposal for the Academy on how to diversify its director's pool. And I would like to hear from both of you if it's even feasible. Here we go. So the two ways that you can get in, from what I understand, the two way, there are a couple ways you can get into the director's branch. One of them is to, um, to have film, or you have to have directed two feature films, one in the last 10 years that the Academy deems of high Academy caliber. That's option one. And then there's other option where if you've been nominated for the director's award before, or you are your best picture was nominated, that you can be invited into the Academy. So here's my proposal. I think they should shortlist directors like they do for short films and for music and songs, including making sure that there are at least two women and at least two people of color on that list. Shortlist it. Then you can, people vote as normal. We might end up with the same list in terms of the final nominations, but I think they invite everyone from that shortlist into the Academy and or they invite everyone that's um, definitely in the best picture thing in the into the Academy as well. And then what you've done is you've increased the diversity of the Academy. You may not have increased the number of nominated directors, but you've at least ensured that the folks coming into the pool are diverse. So, for example, this year, if you know, if, if Lulu and Greta were on the shortlist, they would have been in, invited to join the Academy, potentially, even if other voters decided to vote differently. But I think that they're, what that does, it might ensure that the list is more diverse and to say, hey, like these other ones are actually great, too, even if it wasn't in your radar. I <laughs> know it is. Maybe you should watch it. Uh, and include it as you're voting. That's my proposal. I don't know if it'll work. Uh, it's half. Uh, if the Academy listens to this, that's my proposal. Um, if they want to play a role, because I think they have the tools to actually change it and and, and to diversify their own body. Um, but as long as, you know, we only have five slots and 
here's what we get. I don't know if that's going to happen. So there we go. I do not, uh, there's an open question here and I'm going to end with this and I'm not going to answer it. There's, there's been some discussion around whether or not we should open it to like male and female directors. I feel all sorts of ways about that, but that's been on the table. (laughs) I yield the floor. Uh, So many thoughts. Uh, I actually really like your shortlisting idea because I think that we, you know, after the Oscars so white uh, controversy, the, the, the Academy theoretically made some effort to be more diverse. But I actually think that like until they're right, uh, until the Academy reflects America, it's not, you know, it hasn't achieved its goals. And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think there there's a lot of movies that, you know, if there was a 50 film shortlist that came out every year, we would see a lot more diversity because, um, you know, in those top 50 films, it is much more diverse pool of like Greta and Lulu uh, would totally be on that list. There would be a lot of other contextualized pro- just Greta Gerwig, who's Little Women was this year and Lulu Wang, The Farewell, just in case, you know. Yeah. Just so, uh you know, it's so weird. Like, I don't necessarily know if separate male and female categories are the answer, although I found it an intriguing and sort of like, oh, well, it's a bold, like, move if they did that. I I don't necessarily – it implies – you know, the implication with separate categories for performance are that there are something different in those – you know, the reason why there's different male and female sports is because, like, genetic capability – tends towards difference i don't know that there's like a different skill i mean i don't even know if we need to have separate male and female performance categories maybe it's just best actor and it's genderless but i don't know it's an interesting i don't know how the academy can solve its issues but i do think i mean the one thing i haven't seen talked about enough and uh it's interesting is how much joker feels a little all of the Joker nominations felt a little pandery to me. Haven't seen Joker yet. Do want to see Joker. Have not deliberately avoided it. I just have a baby and don't get to see many movies. But it like there's been a lot of drama in the last ten years where like comic book fans have been really angry that comic book movies weren't getting yes. like. And so I I like when I heard Sir Joker got eleven nominations, I was like, oh okay, the Academy is like trying to patter. Uh, pander to a different audience this year of course all of this assumes one single hive mind for the academy but actually it's thousands of people voting sort of randomly based on what they saw but it did feel a little bit like an attempt to diversify in terms of like we're gonna try and get the pop culture thing more engaged to piggyback onto that real quick, there's this joke sort of joke or cliche about the Oscars, which is like, and I heard it said about Josh and Benny Safdie too, which is that the Oscars or the Academy will recognize years down the line someone for something that that they did a long time ago. So like, yes, yeah, Scorsese won for The Departed, whatever you think of The Departed. I like it. I know Charles likes it. Some people think like he should have won for Raging Bull and this was a 40 year later or whatever it was. And so the joke with the Safties is like, don't worry, they'll get recognized one day for having done this great movie or whatever. And I suspect that in some ways the Joker is sort of leaning into what was, hey, the Dark Knight was so great and Heath Ledger was so great and we didn't recognize that. And there there could be some of that. There isn't a hive mind. But I would add that, you know, I've lived here, here being Los Angeles my whole life. I've been around this stuff my whole life. And this place does have 
a way uh it is a bubble in the sense that there are like you go you you leave this city and there's different feelings about movies and what movies matter and like you you consistently see that there's there's a way that this community operates and makes decisions about what is relevant and what is good that is not always reflective of what the community the the culture at large is thinking so (laughs) there isn't a hive mind and yet there is something of a vacuum or an echo chamber i should say about like Ooh, what's buzzy and what's great and what's good and and it and sometimes you feel like they're reaching out to try and connect to what what do real people think is good this year? I guess maybe they like the Joker. I don't know. There's all it, who knows. It's a it, it's it's just it's all so subjective, you know. And the problem I have with the Oscars and I like your solution, Michelle, but I the problem I have with it is that we as a culture we use it to decide in some ways what movies are relevant or or good and I just don't think that's what we should be doing i think we should not do that (laughs) that's my that's my that's my two cents i i would absolutely agree with that charles always says it's like we don't hear so much about the jd power and associates like you know when they're like there's some internal industry awards things that's what this started off as it was like a dinner and they were this it's it's kind of weird that it became a national phenomenon like the Super Bowl because it's not like a sporting event. Filmmaking is not a winner takes all. Like Amer- it doesn't operate that way. So it is a weird convergence of things. And I don't know. It's worth for filmmakers that think about it like it's the brass ring at the end. I think that's uh, if you're starting out and you see it that way. I would like to dispel that notion if I don't think I have the power to certainly, but I like the idea of trying to remind people that some really awesome movies are made all the time that don't have anything to do with the Academy Awards, influential, important movies that, that do everything and more a movie can ever hope to do. So I want, if there's any way to like (laughs) get on that soapbox, I want to be on it. But that wraps back around to what you were saying about Sundance, which is one of the things you realize when you go to Sundance is like there's movies Sundance is going to be interested in. There's probably not a huge overlap between the movies Sundance is into and the movies the Oscars are into every once in a while, but not really. And like there's kind of the movies the Oscars are into. And like there's clearly people out there who are deliberately trying to make Oscar-y movies. You will see them sometimes when you're like, that is awards bait. Like you are attempting to win (laughs) awards. And it's just Mm -hmm. sort of accepting that there is a certain – taste of these things i think the frustration for some of us is when something like uncut gems which again haven't seen because i have a baby but desperate to see cannot wait to see um so good are when you know even from the trailer and the clips online you can tell that adam sandler who is capable of amazing things if you've seen punch drunk love and a few of his other movies and even his mainstream comedies he's actually really great in like adam sandler is good at stuff you can't deny that when when that gets robbed uh, I think that's what inspires people to write things like Grown Ups 3, which is the last thing we're going to talk about today. Which, <laughs> yes, great which, segue. Which went around Twitter this week. Uh, a writer called Tom Sharp, named Tom Sharpling, he's not called, I mean, I guess people might call him that, uh, <laughs> wrote a, uh, a script for Grown Ups 3. If you're not aware of the Grown Ups franchise, it is a series of movies starring Adam Sandler with all of his friends. Um, Happy Madison, right? Yeah, That's his company. Happy Madison team. Yeah. And there, ha- there's only been a one and a two. Three has not come out yet. And so Tom Sharpling took it upon himself 
to uh, write a Grown Ups three. And really, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil anything. I'm not gonna ruin the ending. There's a couple great. There's like seven great twists in it. But really, the movie <laughs> is about like at its fundamental level, it's about what society chooses to to reward, and it's about what what it might take for Adam Sandler to gain public recognition for his skills outside comedy. And it is like an attempt to grapple with all of that. It's also great and has this great Steve Buscemi cameo. Um, so I, I recommend people give it a read. It's pretty fun. Um, I avoided half an hour's worth of work by reading it. It's pretty short. It's like 50 pages. <laughs> and uh, it's not a... But it it's about this. It's about the like, you know... The, the ways we push ourselves to get, uh, or others, to get some sort of external validation for our work. And the power of Twitter. Yes. Yeah. To share your work with others. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, and, like, Tom Sharpling was already a working actor, writer, so he's going to be fine. But, like, this is definitely the kind of thing that if this was an unknown writer, the writer would have an agent this week. Yeah. Uh, it definitely yeah. had had its moment. So Adam Sandler did say that he would make a, quote, really bad movie if he lost the nomination and so my question was is Grown Ups 3 the movie that Adam Sandler is gonna make I don't know it sounds like it's not because it doesn't sound terrible <laughs> no it's not but but I think it's funny because like it because he did there was this joke that it was like that he put out there and I don't know the exact quote either but it was something like oh you want you if you don't recognize me for the the serious work I've done in Uncut Gems I'm gonna unload like the most like offensively Adam Sandler in the in the jokey bad way <laughs> I possibly can upon audiences but like yeah to say just to like Adam Sandler amazing like some amazing comedy in his career and has taken a few swings at the more serious stuff and this just like lands and no one can take away like award or not I mean the man's super successful so no one should feel bad about any of this but like no one can take away how great the work is and how well uh, the movie is put together and in some ways I saw some cool commentary in, in the Twitter verse that was like <laughs> punk rock isn't dead uncut gems is awesome and it didn't get anything and it and that I kind of like you know I kind of think like hey maybe that's like maybe that makes uncut gems even a little more cool and raw and special that it's like yeah it wasn't really for the academy but that doesn't mean that that's almost like a little another feather in its cap in a way so that has been this week. Uh, I'm Charles Hain, tech writer at No Film School. You can check out my articles at nofilmschool.com. Follow me on the Instagrams and the Twitters. I also uh, I have a web series coming out called Salty Pirate. You can check it out at saltypirate.tv. It's coming out this spring. We're trying to get more people to follow the Insta. This is Michelle De La Tour. You can follow me on socials at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. I look forward to it. This is George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And we're really excited about Sundance, if you can't tell from this podcast and from, you know, the stuff we're going to have up on nofilmschool.com. We're going to be podcasting to you live from Park City next week with all kinds of special guests and roundtables and some regular No Film School contributors, as well as myself and Charles. We'll be talking about the movies there, the events. We'll try to bring you there as best we can. And be sure to check out our Sundance coverage on the site in addition to starting next week, in addition to our regular stuff, which we'll keep going up every day. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. Thanks so much. Thanks.